Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official podcast and radio program of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Rachel Hu. And I'm Chris Garaffa, and we're very happy to be here with you on Covert Action Bulletin, recorded Tuesday, August 23rd. You can hear this program live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on 99.5 FM in New York City, or you can subscribe to the podcast to listen anytime by searching Covert Action Bulletin on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Later in the show, we're joined by anti-imperialist journalists and transgender rights activist Morgan Artsukina to discuss how the U.S. government has been reacting to monkeypox as the country has recorded over 15,000 cases in all 50 states, D.C., and Puerto Rico. By looking at the history of the homophobic response to the AIDS epidemic, they give us an important perspective about misinformation and prejudices to look out for when we see media coverage and government information about the disease. But first, Twitter's former head of security, Peter Zatko, has come forward blowing the whistle on Twitter's internal security practices, which he says are serious national security threats. Zatko sent the complaint and supporting documents to the Justice Department and the FTC, and has also gone public with his concerns about the platform. We dive deeper into what is alleged that Twitter that Twitter has been hiding and its implications. We also discussed the recent trial of Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr., who were recently tried and convicted for their attempted kidnapping plot on Michigan Governor Whitmere. We parsed through the growing threat of the right-wing domestic terrorism that has been growing in the United States and what the role of the state has been in all of this story. There's so much to get into, but I definitely want to talk about Twitter first. I mean, you've been watching this come all unfold. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? I I have many thoughts and I want to get into it. And there's so many things they're talking about with Elon Musk and so much of it feels a little bit irrelevant, but I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I saw this news come out this morning and, you know, even though I've had to be working today, I've been reading these documents on the side because this is so important. What is being said here uh, is so critical to understand by Peter Zatko, who ran security for Twitter, but that's not his only, you know, claim to fame, so to speak. Uh, Zatko, or as he goes by the name Mudge, spent, you know... A decade, you know, in the 90s, you know, really building up this hacker collective, Loft, L0PHT, Loft Heavy Industries, and they were super well known. They were what's called the white hat hackers. You know, they would find issues, they would report them, build what's called responsible disclosure so that companies have a chance to actually fix issues before they're taken advantage of. Um, Really, you know, brilliant guy. Um, And he was hired in 2020 as the head of security for Twitter and has now, uh, as a whistleblower, published you know, reports basically saying that Twitter's CEO, both the former one, Jack Dorsey, and Parag Agarwai, don't know what they're doing at best and at worst, that they are intentionally misleading their investors, but also the public, as to how poorly the technology and security at this company uh, is run. So, of course, a lot is going to be made out of two things that I think, you know, are important to understand, but not the most important or interesting to me. First is the question of Elon Musk, because there is a whole section in the disclosure document. In fact, the first section is about Elon Musk and 
and this Twitter war between the Twitter CEO and Musk, who, let's remember, went and, you know, made a bid for Twitter and said, you know, give you 40 something billion dollars. And, you know, now they're caught in this legal battle because Elon Musk says Twitter has way more than the 5% spam users that Twitter says that it does. Um, In this document, Mudge goes through how, you know, those numbers are probably, you know, not as correct as as Twitter could make them. Um, the other thing that I that is being mentioned a lot is you know the so-called national security implications of the way Twitter worked. Uh, a lot is being made of that, and it's concerning to me because like there was an article in CNN Business just this afternoon by Brian Fung, and we're recording this again on Tuesday uh, that says that the title is "Twitter is vulnerable to Russian and Chinese influence." Whistleblower says so technically true. Right? Right. That is something that is alleged in the disclosure documents. But what is way down, paragraphs down uh, beyond all of the the guesses is that actually the Indian government forced Twitter to hire an employee to work on their payroll. Um So, yeah, the headline, of course, says Russia and Chinese influence, uh, but way down, it's actually like, well, they actually have proof that it was the Indian government that that did force Twitter to hire an employee to do the bidding of the Indian government. And I think there's going to be a lot more that comes out of that as well after, I guess, so to say, the dust settles and we learn some more about this. And I'm personally looking forward to hearing how others in the industry, um, you know, react to this after we have a chance to kind of digest a little more of this information. I mean, the main document here is 84 pages, very uh, in-depth, very interesting. I'm going to be sure to read it again. You know, certainly. And I think we'll, you know, we'll keep talking about this. But Rachel, I know you have questions, but the one the things that I'm actually the most curious about to learn more about and the things I want to highlight are actually the poor security practices that Twitter has internally. Um, Half of its employees or so just have full access to the production environment, meaning like the servers that run Twitter.com and have all of our information on them. They have no logging, meaning that they're not tracking which of those engineers are going in and looking at or modifying or doing anything on the tweets. I mean, this is actually the part that I am super, super interested in, uh, you know, learning more about and exposing really, you know, through the, these allegations. Uh, there's also, you know, really interesting part where they talk about how if a certain number of Twitter's data centers, the physical places where they have the servers went down, it could be months before Twitter came back up. And like, I mean, I don't know, Rachel, like I use Twitter all the time for news and, and all of that. I'm sure, you know, you're you're on it as well. Not as much, I think, as I am. And maybe I should emulate you a little more with that. But, you know, many people do rely on this service. Millions of people rely on this service. And to not have a plan to bring it back up if the worst happened... Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, completely just irresponsible it's just to me. It's terrible company management. I mean, just on like a business perspective, like, are you kidding me? But I mean, okay, I want to bring this up to like you mentioned about when Mudge, I'm going to call him Mudge. I like it. It's more fun to me um, <laughs> than Zatko. But either way, when, when Zatko was hired, he was actually hired because this teenager essentially compromised Twitter's security, which was wild. I mean, it was like ultimately, I guess, some cryptocurrency scam, but it easily could have 
have been absolutely like like was being mentioned. It could have been some sort of a, a national security threat. It could have been it could have been either an individual actor or even a governmental actor anywhere in the world that wanted to 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 intervene on Twitter. And I think that there's something really to me to be said because the 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 teenager took over. I think it was Musk's account and Biden's account amongst a few others. And to me, I, I think what's really scary here and what you're saying about the fact that any employee, I guess, can just go in there and do whatever it is they would like to do is that Twitter is... I think in so many ways, the the new frontier of where people get their news and it's where a war could easily break out. I mean, in a real way, like what what the president says on Twitter, what the U.S. president says on Twitter can have implications that travel so quickly that we really have no ability to get on top of it. Like if there was a, a false tweet being made from President Biden's account, what could happen if other countries saw that and took that information and reacted very quickly as they should be reacting? acting without any sort of knowledge outside of that. I mean, it is very scary. Even the public's energy. I mean, even with this recent trip of Pelosi to Taiwan, the Chinese public has been very, of course, rightfully so riled up about the fact that they, that the U.S. would do this. I mean, you just have to imagine what if there were to be a, a further pushing of something in that way, right? If, if not just about Taiwan, but about anything of any country, that people in any nation can get very much so riled up depending on what they see. And it, it's very real. And it, it could be real information that's also leaked as well, or information that's completely fabricated in some ways it doesn't matter. The point is, to me, is that information in this new era that we're in, it moves faster than governments can respond. And it moves quicker than any sort of regulatory body could respond as well. And so the kind of security threat that's here is very severe. And I'm not here to say I care too much about the, the U.S.'s national security interests, but it's also in another direct. There's many different directions you can imagine that going, because for some reason, a private company, a private company like Twitter, runs a service that is is actually vitally important in relationship to politics, like international politics and global relationships. I think in the last five to 10 years, we have really seen the development and change of global politics playing out on this platform. And so to me, to have a vulnerable, a company be the one responsible for the potential outcome of very delicate relationships around the world seems very terrifying, if you ask me. And I mean, Twitter also has the these, like in 2011, they had these consent decrees with regular audits that they're supposed to be doing with the SEC, and they really don't even have a strong security plan in place. So it makes you wonder, like, what is the oversight actually even happening? And even when he whistleblows and, and shares this information, what would really be done? I mean, I, I understand I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter mostly because of work that I have, mostly for breakthrough. Honestly, I really am not on Twitter as a person as much as maybe I should be. I guess you're supposed to do that when you're in journalism, but I just can't stomach it. But it's like, you know, this is a, a service that or this is a or this is a company that provides this social media service that really, when we're thinking about it, it's very concerning to me that we can imagine that Twitter isn't having any sort of real oversight. Like, is it a necessary service in society in some ways? Like, if it was to go down and it was no longer to exist, I mean, how would the world change? Like, I mean, that's what I was thinking about in some ways. It's like, you know, if there's if the security threats are so real and there aren't necessarily oversight bodies that could handle it, is this what should continue to exist in a capitalist system? 
should we even have this kind of a concentration of information in this way? I mean, but I think the cat's out of the bag. There's nothing you can do. So, I mean, my thoughts on really how you move forward is this has to be an industry that's controlled by governmental bodies and in some ways international governmental bodies, if you want to be honest, because of the the, the serious tenuousness of those relationships. But uh, I could go on. That's just it's it's real. The information age has really changed the way that even international politics works. And it's all playing out on the Internet. And a lot of it plays out on Twitter. Yeah, look, we're just coming out of a presidency where it was governed by tweets. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, whether people say, oh, I don't like that or what. That's just that's how it was. Like it was governing by tweet. 280 characters, mostly in all caps at a time. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. That's just the re- that's how it was. Right. You know, very interesting. You know, in this document, point number 48 is about the January 6th attack. Um, and Mudge went to the engineers in charge, uh, the executive in charge of engineering, in fact, and said, how do we seal the production environment? Meaning, how do we prevent rogue engineers who are inside the company from making changes, from locking other people out, from locking the engineers themselves out, from taking over the platform? And it turns out there was actually no way of doing that. There was no way uh, for them to do that. And it goes on, and I think this is just a little side note, goes on that uh, Mudge was then offered a what they call a Day one appointed position as the chief information security officer or CISO for the United States. And he actually turned that down uh, because he thought he could do have more of an impact at Twitter than in the U.S. government, which to me says a whole lot about the impact that Twitter has on not just the U.S., but the world as a whole. Now, we should recognize, too, you know, uh, Mudge, in in his history, has worked with DARPA. He's worked with the CIA. You know, he's worked with private industry. I mean, he's extremely well-respected, you know, whether or not you agree with working at all those places. And I think in this conversation, that's not what it's about. I mean, he certainly knows what he's talking about here. But I think that gets into talking about, you know, why so much of this is framed in the context of national security. Uh, I mean, let's be real. You know, what we're looking at here, too has also been sent to Congress because, you know, in the 90s, Mudge and other uh, members of Loft testified in front of Congress about serious issues with the way the internet was run, with the basic infrastructure. And again, here, you know, he's doing the same. I mean, I will watch, you know, if he's called in front of a test, you know, to testify, I think, you know, I will watch, I will, you know, encourage everyone else to watch as well because I think it'll be some of the most expert expert testimony that you can get Mm, no certainly I mean the other thing too in in this as well is makes you wonder about what's going on behind the scenes like why here and why now I mean there's all that speculation around it's it's related to Elon Musk that's why he's sharing this I, I don't necessarily see it that way I mean the reason why he chose to come onto Twitter, like you had mentioned, has everything to do with the fact that if you can make a, a bigger impact on this platform, then why not? And so to me, I, I, I see it in some levels of it could be good faith, but it also could not be. We really don't know the internal workings right now of the divides within the ruling class around the issue of corporate control of social media. I mean, the whole issue of social media in and of itself, to me, is just that the, that there's been this promise from Meta, from you know Facebook, Instagram. From Twitter, from TikTok, that they'll all concede, they'll they'll stay private and concede to the government, the U.S. government, without needing any more levels of oversight. But it's become very obvious and very clear that there needs to be a body of oversight. I mean.
mean, I was thinking about this the other day. There's this book that I've been reading. I really highly recommend it. It's called Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, who used to work in finance and a variety of other places, um, talking about how algorithms, especially uh, social media algorithms in particular, are built in such a way that they have profound impacts on society. I mean, it's a really interesting look. And in some ways, it's connected to this in the sense that there's a lot of people in this, especially in this space around social media, around technology, who are saying that algorithms need to be governed by an FDA-like body, because that's the kind of impact that they have. In the same way that the, the Food and Drug Administration should be looking at what goes into our bodies, we should also be looking at the kind of impact psychologically and in terms of a greater society, what social media has on people. And there needs to be real, real meaningful regulation and oversight. And so I think about that, too, in the context of this story with Twitter, that there has to be some sort of oversight that is so beyond what we're being given. And in some ways, I feel like a lot of the solutions under capitalism even pale in comparison. They they do fall short. I mean, it really needs to be if we're going to continue to have these kinds of platforms that have these kinds of sensitivities, they really need to be overseen by a a more international body, frankly, because Twitter is comprising of governmental bodies all around the globe, having political conversations and making political interventions in the space. And so to me, I just think even whatever paltry type of oversight Congress might offer is just not enough in relationship to what needs to be done. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you on that, Rachel. I think a lot about the question of how do we have oversight of Facebook, Twitter, all of these companies without just handing more of our information directly to the U.S. government. Like they should be public platforms, right? They should be publicly owned. And I think like international coordination in that sense is actually critical. I think that's the way we need to look at it. You know, uh, the U.S. government is going to have a harder time, you know, exploiting um our connections to these companies and the data they have, if they're under like UN control, for example, right? If there's actually an international story or if there's actually an international body that is truly democratic and representative. And so I'm saying includes all countries, not just pro-Western countries, European countries. Yes, includes Russia, includes China, includes all the countries that are impacted uh, by these companies uh, and has those that representation, I think that would go a long way in addressing some of these things. And so they would come under international guidance, just as, you know, yes, there's an FAA in the United States, flight, you know, the two controls, you know, flight paths and all of that stuff. But there's also international bodies that, you know, deal with that internationally. And I think it's not a perfect one-on-one and someone at a flight school is going to, is going to tweet at me about this right now and how that was a bad example. <laughs> but I hope people get what I'm saying saying because it's you know having an international body of coordination rulemaking and enforcement would be such a, a an important thing to to have to move forward cannot trust the US alone to to do it or private actors. I mean, because that's what yeah. it currently is. It's private actors with private profit interests. Like, I mean, that's what's wild to me about the current situation. Like when I was in Cuba, one of the things that I thought was very interesting, I was speaking to some folks who are part of the the young communist group there that really incredible. I mean, it's just so incredible. It's just I don't know. I don't get to Cuba. But when I was speaking to them, it was really interesting just because they were talking about how their organization's pages were taken down on Instagram. I mean, they're a governmental body. They are a, a state sanctioned, regulated 
youth organization that works in combination with the the Communist Party in Cuba. And so it's just it's it's really crazy to me to imagine that they're going to get banned on Instagram when there's something that's understood and accepted within their society as a necessary part of making sure that that all people are incorporated and included in the democracy of that country. So it's just really to me like if there was to be an international oversight, it would have to include that as well, like algorithms that deprioritize and work in such a way to both create radicalization on the right or algorithms that work to deprioritize and and suppress the voices of different governments and different interests. I mean, those are not democratic. I, I don't understand why in the United States, specifically around the issue of the, the Horn of Africa and Eritrea or in Ethiopia, I mean, in the breakthrough, we've done a lot of coverage around this issue, and we've been one of the only Western journalist organizations to do so. And it's crazy to me to think about that and just how how hard did activists within the No More movement, which have been talking a lot about the kind of Western distortion of the situation in Ethiopia, how hard those activists had to work to try to get the platforms to even move somewhat in their direction to draw attention to what's really going on there. I mean, there's a lot of great reporting. Hermela Argawal, she's a great someone, person to check out to see what she's done. Of course, Eugene Perrier of Breakthrough News and Rania Halik, they've done some great reporting on Ethiopia. But I bring it up as a small case example of that the, the, the national, the, the government, the national interest, the, the president, all of the different workings and bodies of Ethiopia, why are they not given any sort of power or ability to tell their narrative and tell their story in the way that they understand it, in the way that they're talking about it within their country? We are given such a profound distortion. I mean, the same could be said for China, for Russia. I mean, we don't have a democratic world when it comes to media and the new media landscape, without a doubt, is everything is on social media and it is regulated by Twitter. It's regulated by private companies and private interests. And those private interests are building algorithms that suit the needs of advertisers. They're not even suiting the needs of what news is and how news should travel and how we should be consuming news. They're not built for that. They're built for your eyes to purchase, the, to be on the website, to be on the social media sites, to be on the apps and to make sure your eyes don't leave the feed so that way you purchase different items from all the different advertisers that are on there. It's not even built for the sake of, of sending news or what it's actually being used for. So, I mean, there's a lot to get into, but I always think about this stuff and just how profound it is in this moment, in this new era of information, how much we need to be thinking differently about the way these platforms are interacting with our society. It's such a big area. It's such a big topic. And I think there's so many we could do entire episodes on this. I think we you know and we certainly certainly should because it really ties so many of the other things that we talk about together. Because how do, do we get these news? I mean, I got a push notification on my phone today about this story. That's how I found out about it, through uh, a social media push notification. It's it's the reality. And look, democracy, real democracy is messy. I'm not saying that an international oversight and enforcement body would be clean and easy and, you know, we could just make it happen tomorrow. I mean, just think about having, like, you know, your your roommates try to figure out who's doing the dishes tonight. You know, it, it's going to be it's going to be messy. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be fights. There's going to be disagreements. But if we have the basis of true international spirit and cooperation, if everyone says, yeah, we're here with this understanding. And we're here because, you know, we have to come together to make this happen. Then that's the step forward. That is the step forward that that we absolutely, without a doubt, need. Rachel, 
Before we get into our interview today, and I'm very excited to talk uh, with Morgan, but we should talk about this for a couple minutes. On Tuesday, uh, a jury convicted two guys of uh, conspiring to kidnap the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, in 2020. Um, The prosecutors said it was a rallying cry for U.S. civil war. Uh, These are two guys, Adam Fox, Barry Croft Jr. Um, They were found guilty of conspiring to obtain a weapon of mass destruction, which the police say was a bomb that they wanted to use to blow up a bridge. They wanted to uh, kidnap the governor um, and uh, harm her. I mean, this all goes back also around when COVID restrictions were first coming into place. Um, this is the second trial for the two of them. Uh, what are you making of, of this news today? I mean, I think it's such an important story to look at because I think like we've been talking about even with algorithms and and thinking about all the different elements uh, in terms of regulation of social media. I mean, one of the things that the algorithms have been producing, not just algorithms and, and artificial intelligence, but it's really been an overall societal. There's there's many reasons for the growth of the right. But I will say that algorithms absolutely have played a, a major role in this and pushing forward right wing content and producing just an absolute new birth of of this this right wing kind of terrorism, frankly. I mean, it's really connecting people in all different ways in, in, in new methods and new mediums and new ideas to, to really grow a, a serious, dangerous right-wing movement in this country. And so there, there's many other elements as to how and why that's growing. But I, I do think about in those two things to bringing those together. But I think it's really important to pay attention to these kinds of stories because the growth of the right wing is significant. I mean, the type of terrorism, like we had mentioned before during Pride Month, when there was an attempted attack on a small Idaho pride, like a pride march. I mean, it's it's very serious and it's very scary what could be happening here. And I mean, in particular, I, I think it is interesting to pull some of the facts from the case about this. I know the, the U.S. assistant U.S. attorney told jurors that essentially they, they wanted to set off a second American civil war, a second American revolution, something that they call the Boogaloo, which is just kind of an interesting thought because Boogaloo in that in that reference in particular, it's like the Boogaloo Bowl. I mean, it's terminology that's used very regularly in the right wing to talk about the kind of race war that they're building and the desire for them to build ultimately a race war. I mean, they're not talking about a revolution for the people. They're talking about a revolution to implement a white supremacist society. I mean, that's what they're looking to do, a revolution that suits literally only people of European descent. And they're very clear about what that means. So I do think it's an important story for that reason. And I don't know what you think about this, but I I think that there's been an interesting look I've seen at it where people are kind of saying, well, you know, they've been entrapped by the FBI. Is that really something that we should, you know, this kind of this interesting narrative that I'm seeing come up in that sense. And it's interesting to me that the FBI even stepped in to begin with. If I'm being honest, the FBI has looked the other way consistently since 2016. We've seen right wing terrorists who were known terrorists who were part of Charlottesville, the, the attack in Charlottesville, just essentially keep living their lives and continue to grow and develop terrorist cells. I mean, I don't know what else to call them, but they're developing small right-wing groups all around the country that are continuing to grow. So, I mean, the FBI didn't step in then. I don't really know what the U.S. state has really been doing in a serious way to combat the right. So I I do think it's a complicated territory that you get into here because it's in so many ways. I mean, why is the U.S. government not doing more to combat the right? And they absolutely should be. So it's an interesting thought I've had to see that kind of tension in this story. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the, the rise of the militia movement has been well documented since 2008. And of course, what else happened in 2008? We have our first black president, Barack Obama. So it is no coincidence that the militia movement the you know, has been increasing since then. You can go from there into the Tea Party and then, you know, very just, you know, not direct, but indirect offshoots of that, um, you know, or the popularization of groups like Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. Um, and others who I'm not even going to give, you know, attention to here. I'm not going to promote their names on, you know, on, on, on air because they don't deserve the attention, frankly. Um, but there are so many of them and they are everywhere. If you think you live in, you know, New England and there aren't Nazis, uh, there are organized Nazi groups in all New England states. You know, we are not a blue area. Um, you know, so don't be, you know, don't be surprised when you see stuff like this. But OK, so why would the FBI step in here. I mean, first, it was an attack on a governor, right? Um, a second, you know, we were at a time, you know, where an election was going to be coming up. We already knew that it was going to be a very controversial election, right? This is before we had, you know, the sense that Trump is going to say, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I won no matter what. Uh, but, you know, we knew it was going to be a very controversial and difficult election. And I think, you know, I, I believe that if COVID had never happened, by the way, Trump would have won re-election, like, without a doubt. Um, we had the system really in a panic over Trump, but also over COVID. And this was a threat against a sitting governor, somebody who represents the system as well. And I think that's a huge reason why the FBI stepped in here, but doesn't do anything when Nazi groups attack drag queen story hours at libraries in Boston or, you know, Pride events. I mean, those right wing extremists who were caught at the Pride event, they like that was basically an accident. Like the police were tipped off by somebody else, even though the threat was well known that they were coming to this. So I think that that's my perspective, Rachel, on why it was, you know, why they the FBI did something here. I mean, look, we and we've talked about it before. We can talk about it. You know, I'm sure we will again many times. Why weren't there police, you know, Capitol Police, uh, you know, three lines deep at January 6th? I mean, there's many, many situations where we have to consider what the role of the, you know, law enforcement is, what the role of the state is, especially when there are conflicts within the ruling class itself, which then play out through things like uh, the use of law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you in that sense. And I feel like it's like it's interesting. Like, I think Fox's attorney, it was was complaining and saying that, you know, the, the FBI should not be the one to create domestic terrorists. I'm like, I don't think the FBI, frankly, created domestic terrorists here. I think it's a completely false statement, if you ask me, because the idea that the right wing in some ways has, isn't growing on its own, isn't a serious issue, isn't a profound force now in society is just in some ways putting your head in the sand. I mean, you know, there's so many details you could get into here, but that's that's my personal takeaway is that like, no, like the the bombing of abortion clinics goes back to the 80s. I mean, the idea that domestic terrorism is just being produced and created by the state when in fact it's being it is being enabled by the state. I think it's a better way of putting it. It's being enabled by the state. It's being uplifted by the state. It's being ignored by the state. And so it's a really interesting time to be saying, well, you know, they're not these people are not responsible for this attack because the FBI created this 
this attack. And, you know, may, maybe maybe in a sense, it's a, in a roundabout sense, it's true, like in the sense of like, you know, the FBI, without a doubt, has looked the other way so many different times for the right. But for them to actually step in and do something this time around is just ultimately what the state is supposed to be doing. I mean, that's the nature of it. But they won't because in a capitalist system, the state is too weak. It's too incapable of actually battling the right. It folds. It really folds under the pressure. And I think that there's something to be said about that, that when we're talking about fighting back against the right wing, the FBI isn't going to save us. The police aren't going to save us. The ruling class really in so many ways has had no interest in actually stopping the growth of the right. And these, especially with artificial intelligence and all the different things I was mentioning about algorithms. I mean, companies make so much money off of, of the Nazi YouTube hellhole that, that exists. I mean, it's just why would they have any sort of, of financial incentives to stop producing that? So I do think it's a really important point to, to stick with that, that the state is incapable fully of being able to fight the right wing and really incapable of stopping the right wing and often does enable and uplift the right wing. And so I think we should really see the fact that the FBI stepped in in, in a way in a different light. But I also want to bring this in here, Chris, and I know we're going to be talking with Morgan about this soon, but and talking about the growth of the right wing, I think it's really important when we talk about this next story about monkeypox is to really kind of take a bigger look to that the strategy of the new right has been very much so about targeting LGBTQ people. I mean, it's targeting women and women's bodies, especially with the, the recent ruling on abortion. But more than that as well, it's been the, the don't, gay, don't say gay laws in Florida. It's been this very particular attack on libraries, as we had talked about in drag queen story hours. And it's just been an all out kind of uh, call to violence against LGBTQ people all across the country and especially more right wing areas. So I think it's an important context to think about when we're thinking about the new resurgence of monkeypox and the potential quote unquote gay disease. Like how is the right going to be using this and the violence that it's already pushing forward on LGBTQ communities, you know? Yeah, certainly. I think when we look at, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation, but when we look at the way that gender and sexuality and disease are often, you know, intermixed uh, in, a, in a time of crisis like this, when we look at back to the AIDS crisis, or we look now, you know, I saw a video on Twitter today, it was at some school board meeting, and this guy was rambling on about, oh, there's two genders, and the boys are boys, and the girls are girls, and this and that, but then he goes and he says, oh, and, you know, let the, you know, Fs, you know, have their, you know, their, their monkey pox. And it's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You'd let us have our monkey pox. Like as a queer person myself, like I'm like, OK, that was targeted at me, at the younger version of me, at my teachers, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's what that's about. And so the right actually is bringing monkey pox in in this attack. Just like how Magic Johnson was treated, a very famous, well-respected black man who was just, the people like wouldn't even go near him for the longest time. I mean, it took the story of Ryan White in many ways to, to become famous, you know, for, you know, this white boy, right, uh, who was not gay, for people to really understand AIDS. And I mean, I think that's, you know, maybe what's going to have to happen with monkeypox, so we don't have that kind of time. Uh, there's so much to this, and I'm really looking forward, like I said, to talking with Morgan Moore. Over action. We're so happy to be joined now by Morgan Artsukina, an anti-imperialist journalist and transgender rights activist. Welcome to the show, Morgan. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on. This is such an important topic. You know, we're seeing now over 15,000 cases of monkeypox in the United States. It's hitting all 50 states plus Puerto Rico. Just in the past couple days, it has been reported that a minor uh, in New York State has it. And now there's a kind of a panic around the schools and, you know, what the schools are going to do to prevent the spread of monkeypox. Um, but this is something that, you know, as we've been focusing so much on COVID over the past couple of years, we should talk more about what monkeypox actually is because they're kind of very different situations. You know, monkeypox uh, was first observed in humans in 1970. It is related to smallpox, but not the same thing. And you wrote a really, really fantastic article for Covert Action magazine called Showing Old Prejudices. U.S. government falsely associates monkeypox outbreak with gays, bisexuals, and Africans. And I really want to encourage everyone to go check that out. We'll include it in the show notes for this show. It's on the CovertActionMagazine.com website as well. But it really made me think so much about how, you know, public discussion of like disease and the cause and the treatment uh, and even who deserves treatment are entirely political, right? The raw information that we, you know, that scientists can get through research can say one thing and it's going to say actually different things depending on what kind of research is funded and who's funding it. But even then, when it's discussed by scientists and media, politicians, that can provide a wholly different view and often incorrect view to the public. And you really kind of outline this in, in your article. Can you tell us more about what you're seeing with monkeypox? Yeah. So, well, like you said, it, you know, it's, you can talk about what the data says, but the bigger question is how did you gather and arrive at that data? And uh, that's what's been such a huge problem with uh, with the monkeypox outbreak so far. Not just in the U.S. This is a problem definitely across, um, you know, much of like like Europe and especially I talk about in the article how really the um, the the present kind of uh, outbreak, you know, really was was first identified in the United Kingdom back in May, and uh, and it was there that really a lot of the modern that a lot of the present narrative about monkeypox was forged. Um, by the UK's uh, health security agency and and the British media, and uh, and how they took you know a, a handful of cases of uh, and and decided that the the disease was a, a disease of gay and bisexual men, and uh, and that that narrative has carried through ever since. And a lot of people will hear you hear me say that and say, but of course it is. Everybody in the media says that you know, 90, 98% of cases or whatever, you know, are queer men. And uh, as I talk about in the article, that's because uh, in a lot of places, if you're not a queer man, uh, it's basically impossible uh, to get tested for monkeypox. So the only results that they're getting, you know, are, are not the only results, but predominantly the results they're getting are from queer men. So of, of course it's going to, the data is going to say that only queer men have it, only queer men are being tested for it. So it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling you know, fulfilling prophecy. And then now that the, the information is out there, everybody knows that it's, a, that it's you know, the, the gay and bisexual men are the ones who need to like be at risk, who are at risk, who need to take care of themselves and get tested. So if people aren't you know, queer or aren't a man, you know, they, 
might have the symptoms of it and even if they want you know could get tested might not think that they need to get tested they might not know or you know have the consciousness to say oh this could be you know monkeypox and uh and and go get tested for it because they've been told that it's not a disease that they can get so there's there's a kind of self you know kind of a confirmation bias uh in that too that becomes a kind of a self-perpetuating uh engine so so these these as i talk about in the article these are kind of a it's kind of a repeat of a lot of uh mistakes that were made by both health agencies and the media um back in the 80s when uh when aids was first coming around uh and uh, which was also cast as as a disease unique to uh queer men and trans women uh and so there 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 are some differences of course in the diseases but in terms of the way that it's being framed both diseases are something that people uh, you, they do not discriminate between sexuality or gender uh, in uh, in who can be infected and who can't. And so there's a lot of misinformation that places people at risk. Uh, so, you know, I know you noticed you quoted that number 15,000 at the beginning uh, today or yesterday, I guess, is when they, where the data is from. Uh, when the truth is, we don't know how big the outbreak is. The outbreak is, by all, you know, estimations, much larger in the U.S., than the official numbers catch because of the failings that I just mentioned. Yeah, so we are recording this on Tuesday morning. That number is from the CDC's website uh, that was updated on Monday afternoon. So thank you for that clarification. And we should just, Rachel, I want to get to you in a second, but we should just be clear. Anyone can get monkeypox. Doesn't matter gender, identity, race, class, any any of it, right? Look, anyone can get monkeypox. But Rachel, go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to get into here. Like, I think especially with this situation, I'm just kind of reminded of the throwback, frankly, to what happened in the 80s, like you had mentioned. I know I, I'm thinking about how recently in New York there was one case of a young person, somebody under 18, getting monkeypox. And everyone I know, just anecdotally, who works in schools, anyone I know who has children, there's just a, there is a lot of panic going on around what this means and what could happen. And it's it's not that it's incorrect to panic around this in that sense that, of course, it seems to me, I think a lot of people have a certain type of trauma from COVID. I mean, spreading amongst a large swath of the population and nobody is really stepping in to do a whole lot. And I think some of those feelings are coming up for folks. But it does remind me, actually, of the AIDS crisis in a way, how young people, when it when it was finally the, the fear really hit in, around HIV, when young people started getting it and it became very public. And in fact, there was this one case I always think about. It was of this six-year-old girl. She was actually mentally disabled. And she was ordered by a federal judge to attend a Florida school encased in a glass booth. It was like a six-by-eight-foot glass booth to avoid any chance of spreading the disease. And to me, it's just like, it just shows the ignorance around. We, we don't actually, we didn't know what HIV was at the time. And so they're scapegoating instead of actually understanding. And I think that that's always the case during any of these outbreaks. You kind of see the fabrics of society, you start to see the seams of it. I mean, during COVID, Asian people were scapegoated. It was a China disease, a China virus. And we know now, I mean, that's not the case. I mean, we knew then, but we also know now that it's absolutely not the case. And it's actually far more likely that COVID originated in Europe and other parts of Europe. I mean, there were even cases in France and Italy 
that could have been that could have been traced back further than what we saw in China. But, you know, there's no conclusive data per se. But my point being is that it's absolutely not the fault of Asian people. So I think we see the same type of narrative happen anytime there's a major public health outbreak. And I think for monkeypox and what I'm curious to get into here is that, you know, because it's not as deadly, I think that there has been an interesting response to it. There's been less really kind of conversation and talk about it. I think now, especially in New York, once it's hits children, people have kind of changed a little bit of the way that they're speaking about it. But I know the CDC was talking about renaming the disease just because the word monkeypox isn't very valuable or useful in relationship to actually helping public health or helping people access public health, a different variety of things that they're going to need in this process. So there's that on the table. And the other part of it as well, to me, is also that for monkeypox, it really has been just a kind of thing that's flown under the radar in a sense. And now the CDC has declared a public health emergency. But what exactly will that even mean? I I think the CDC has shown during COVID and during that time period and in the last few years that what does a public health emergency response look like in the United States with such few resources dedicated to public health. You know, I'm curious your thought, Morgan, on this, on on the issue of public health in the United States and what a public health emergency would even constitute and the kind of failures of the CDC and the whole system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's um, that's a a very big topic. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is there's because of just extremely disorganized and kind of decentralized, you know, American healthcare system, um, decentralized in the sense of like, you know, there's very little really kind of public, you know, responsibility, I would say to, to health agencies and of course to healthcare companies too, who have such a enormous influence over the response as well. Uh, and, and so there's this, there's always, this going to be this enormous difference. And we saw this in COVID too, where the CDC, you know, gave certain health recommendations and advisories and local health agencies and local governments and state governments interpret those in different ways and sometimes just reject them if they find them politically inconvenient. So, so there's kind of multiple layers to it. You know, there's, there's, what is the CDC advising and there's, what is local, what are local officials, you know, actually doing? Um, I think, I think that, I mean, you're right that, that, that monkeypox, this clade of monkeypox is not as deadly as, uh, as COVID or certainly even as other, other clades of monkeypox, which are not part of this outbreak or or driving this outbreak. Um, but I think that there is a parallel with COVID in that it has the, uh, capacity to really, really be debilitating, you know, for people Um, with COVID, you know, it's not, it's, it's, you know, long COVID it's, it's organ damage and memory, you know, brain fog. And there's so many other things that are, you know, disabling people permanently. In addition to just the immense suffering that comes with having COVID, you know, I had COVID two months ago and it was, it was the worst three weeks of sickness I've had in a very long time. Um, I didn't die obviously, but like, that doesn't mean, you know what I mean? Like, like people should have to go through that. And when it comes to, 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 to monkeypox too, you know, the, it's, it's a multi-week, you know, sickness with fever and, and aches. And there isn't really a a medication that can really adequately, you know, treat that aside from just taking a painkiller and a fever suppressor. Um, But also, you know, the, 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 the lesions leave scars on your body. And, uh, and just like, 
uh, with smallpox, uh, if you get those lesions, you can get those lesions inside your body. You can get them inside your eyes and they'll make you go blind. You know, you can get them um, inside your rectum. You can get them in lots of places that just make life hellish or, like I said, can leave you permanently disabled um, if, if you get a lesion inside your eye. Uh, so, so, you know, it is still a serious disease and a debilitating disease that um, is worth treating and preventing and, and, you know, doing our best to eliminate, even if it isn't going to kill people, you know, uh, or kill that many people. So it's, it's, you know, health, health policy is a lot more than just making sure people don't die. It's also making sure that people can, can live the healthiest and longest and, you know, most productive and happiest, you know, lives from a medical standpoint that they're able to do. So, so there's, there's, there's kind of multiple, um, uh, uh, levels to, to, to that as well. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I think that there has been this significant underplaying because we have a skewed understanding in the United States of even what public health is to begin with and what its purpose is. And I think COVID showed that. I mean, people really, it was an incredibly deadly pandemic. And I mean, we still have the highest numbers, some of the highest numbers in the world of deaths. And that's not to mention the mass disabling event that was also COVID. So many people are strapped down with long COVID and will be having symptoms and other challenges and issues related to the disease well into the next couple of decades, if not beyond that. We, we don't know necessarily what any sort of cures there are going to be out there in the future for any of the symptoms of long COVID. But I, I think I, I asked that to I asked that for a reason in the sense that I feel very strongly that public health in the United States is profoundly distorted and misunderstood. And I think that especially with monkeypox not being, quote unquote, as deadly, it will lead to very serious and very dangerous results because of the type of ways that people in the U.S. will disregard the kind of health advice. But I also think, too, there's a re recurrence as well of smallpox. It's very small, but it's also happening because of anti-vaxxing. And I think that the other thing about monkeypox vaccine is it's that's similar to the smallpox vaccine, that anyone who's an anti-vax person who feels very strongly against taking vaccines, they're going to be in a situation where this vaccine, it's not even like the COVID vaccine. It's a little bit more intense. It's a little bit more involved. And so it does make me very concerned about what could happen in a public health crisis if you have a vaccine that is in some ways a little more visceral. And what are people going to do in response to that? The U.S. has shown that it is incapable of being able to really any in any way, shape or form tackle anything that is endemic, let alone a pandemic. But Chris, I know you want to get in here first. Definitely, definitely. I mean, just like w when we're thinking about this, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people were just shocked during COVID, you know, which was for many people, but, you know, younger folks, the first real public health emergency that, you know, affected really everyone. They were shocked at, at people, you know, at, at how at the racism, at just how people were refusing to get vaccinated and take certain precautions. But, um, you know, it comes back to the, the lackluster, I mean, the really criminal government response, especially at the beginning. But it certainly isn't the first time. Morgan, in your article, you have a section called Grid 2.0. Of course, Grid being gay-related immunodeficiency, which was what uh, HIV was called starting in 1982 before it was really understood 
understood what it was. Um, but I have this this quote that I want to get your response to as well. From This is from Vito Russo, who was an organizer with ACT UP um, and also the co-founder of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against uh, Defamation. And he said, this is from a rally in 1988 um, at the Department of Health and Human Services. All I read in the newspapers tells me that the mainstream white heterosexual population is not at risk for this disease. All, all the newspapers I read tell me that IV drug users and homosexuals still account for the overwhelming majority of cases and a majority of those at risk. And this speech was later titled, Why We Fight. And it seems so appropriate to bring that message back today when we're talking about monkeypox, because it's the same messaging that we're getting. All of the media says, you know, go get, you know, uh, the way that this is spread is through sexual contact, particularly between men. Um, vaccination programs, you have to be... Uh, a man and have you know multiple anonymous sexual partners or you know a certain you know few other very specific situations in life and that's the only vaccines you can get and i think it's it's offensive really that history is repeating itself in this way so what is the legacy i guess from from, from your perspective of the the fight against the AIDS crisis, but also the fight against the government mismanagement and just response to the AIDS crisis, as you see it applying to monkeypox today. Yeah, I mean, it's so many direct parallels. And I think that this, there are so many direct parallels because of the fact that it involves uh, um, or, or has been decided that it involves um, queer people, that that. Um, that's all. That's the predominant narrative, right? In white Christian society, is that LGBTQ is a lifestyle and a choice, and you know, is uh, is some is a is a behavioral descriptor rather than an, a descriptor of identity. You know, a descriptor of relationships with other people, and so because that's the narrative, I think that's why it comes up again and again and again with um, with HIV. You know, there was I think of. Um, I mean, it's there were many, many people who said it, but because of his high, you know, position, uh, President George H. W. Bush, you know, in in 1990 or 1991, I think, you know, referred to HIV as a disease that you can control with your behavior, uh, you know, putting putting the responsibility on queer people for preventing it and also for spreading it. So, you know, saying that it's not the government's responsibility and it's not the fault of of you know straight society it's the fault of the queers for for being the vector of disease to infect the rest of us and and we see we see all of these same narratives exact same narratives again being used in monkeypox and um and 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 it's there's there's a uh Similar to what you said, Rachel, about you know the ways that that uh, Asian people were uh, scapegoated for COVID, and you had attacks on on um, Asian Americans or Asians in the U.S. Uh, you know uh, that were that were racially motivated, but you know were were the attacker you know made reference to COVID or that kind you know that kind of thing, and we can of course draw lines where there were not explicit articulations for that either. 
Uh, but there was also an attack like here in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago uh, where a gay couple was attacked by a group of people. And, you know, they were called, you know, monkeypox, F word and, you know, other stuff. And it was a very, very clear motivation, you know, attack motivated or at least, you know, justified by uh, this uh, this this fear mongering about you know, gay people are the ones spreading the disease. And, uh, and that's messaging that actually goes all the way up to, the, to uh, Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, saying, you know, in, in, I'm sure it, the way that he's saying it, he clearly think, is trying to be empathetic and, you know, say that this is a, uh, 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 you know, we, a supportive policy, but he's basically saying we need to support queer communities so that they can take care of this themselves. And that's not like... It's, I mean, it, it, it's a thread running throughout this. Where I don't even know that health authorities are actively trying to demonize queer people so much as just not appreciating the fact that homophobia exists and them just kind of sending out this tone-deaf messaging that is, in the, if homophobia didn't exist, then, you know, maybe it would be, you know, a more sensible, uh, in some of the messaging would might be more, more sensible, like, like saying, well, look, if you're going to get, you know, you think you might have an STI, this could also be monkeypox, so, like, you know, get that checked out. Uh, uh, and so, and if you look at like that data, like it's actually like queer men who are the ones who get tested the most for those kinds of things. So there's, you know, there's, there's kind of a certain relevance in some context, but in the context of the extreme hatred of LGBTQ people and this past, you know, kind of, um, archetypes of, of, uh, of demonization that you can pull on socially, uh, to, you know, that, that, that are still in that cultural memory, uh, it, it, those still exist and, and are good. And that's how those orders and those notices are going to be interpreted and, uh, and understood and act upon is based on those, those old stereotypes. Um, so, so that, that's kind of, that's kind of part of the, the, the danger of the whole thing and a big parallel between the way that HIV and, uh, and monkeypox have been responded to by the government. No, definitely get what you're saying. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know we just have a few minutes left with you and we appreciate your time so much. You know, wanted to ask about this, you know, breaking news this week on Monday afternoon. It was announced that Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, as well as an advisor to Joe Biden and a few other positions, in fact, in the government, uh, is going to be stepping down in November. Um, and it's not clear where he's going next or what he's going to be doing. But there's going to be all these retrospectives now about COVID and how Fauci, Fauci addressed COVID. And there's going to be, you know, all these stories and they're already starting to see them come out. Um, but what struck me is I was reading one of the stories in NPR and it says there's the heading here as AIDS crisis grew, he led by listening. And I mean, that is sort of true because he didn't he wasn't acting um in fact there are many many stories including how you know in 1987 michael callan was you know it's quote they're saying he was begging fauci to say you know we can use bactrim is a as a treatment for hiv and fauci you know basically did nothing with it he uh callan was just asking fauci to advocate for it knowing he didn't have the actual power to approve it but just to to advocate for it to be a voice to use his power as a figure in government and really as a face of the u.s response to aids uh to, to do something with it and he did absolutely nothing um how, how do you think in the context of covid and aids and 
how how is how should he be remembered and how should we look back on his legacy i mean it's because he was such he became such a central figure especially i think he i think he took office at night in like 1986 or 1985 i think um from then on you know which was kind of the main institution that was one of the main institutions that was responding trying to respond to aids that um and obviously like act up you know was formed in 1987 and and was this activist movement that that led by queer people that aimed to put pressure on the government and on um, healthcare companies to uh, to do more to to research AIDS, to test new treatments, and to try to you know to to actually do basically to care about trying to treat people and um, and and so you know all the people who were in in the institutions of power, including Fauci, you know they protested outside of Fauci's office up at the NIH, uh, you know so like he was this figure and. Um, you know the focus of of so much of of the of the queer community and of that movement. So, um, and, and I, I think I think that his there's, I know there are people who just see him as just the worst person ever, and there are also people who see him as this like saint who was sent to save us. And I think that both of those are wrong. Uh, I think that, like I was saying, like you know as a person at the NIH an institution of the government, he has certain political priorities, you know, uh, that are, that are geared toward capitalism, um, and geared toward, you know, a, a kind of heteronormativity as well. But also, you know, he was this health figure and he was able to be influenced. Like he didn't do it by his own volition, but, you know, um, when ACT UP, you know, raised their voices, he paid attention. And so there's also that that kind of aspect too. Um, you know, he gets blamed, for example, for like 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 a kind of what you were referencing, Chris, in terms of um, like the fact that AZT kept being kind of the primary treatment for a long time. And uh, you know, looking back from the perspective of you know post 1996, 97, when we got the first you know uh, combination treatments that it, that used AZT as well as several other drugs to 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 treat AIDS and and push it back, um, it's kind of easy from that perspective to kind of look back and say that well you know he was standing in the way of this stuff, but um, you have to remember that like this was all kind of a big scientific mystery. Uh, and, uh, and I, I, so I, 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 I don't think that he was the, the figure, like he was obviously not responsible for pushing any of the homophobic narratives or for the lack of emphasis on AIDS that had happened up until that point, you know, he inherited a problem. Um, but also like, as much as he did to help the queer community to, 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 you know, he was, he did become a, he wasn't a voice for what you mentioned, Chris, but he did become a voice in other respects to, to push, um, to push treatments, to push the FDA, to push, you know, research at the NIH um, at, at, at the same time. But, you know, I think he becomes this kind of figure of, of, hatred because there were still tens of thousands of queer people dying and why shouldn't it go faster? And there was definitely a faction of ACT UP that was very like, you know, drugs in bodies, uh, and, you know, just tested on us kind of thing. And there was a lot of tension in, in ACT UP too, between, between the, the kind of more wonky, you know, researching the disease that effect and then kind of a, um, um, other more kind of anarchistic factions of, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the movement. So, 
there's a lot kind of pulling on that. And then the fact that he now through the context of COVID, you know, kind of it kind of like, well, he, you know, he was involved in these mistakes that happened before. Um, and and so, I mean, as the person who's in who's up there making those decisions, he's absolutely bears responsibility for for the missteps in with AIDS and the missteps with COVID, whether those were made by ignorance or because of misplaced priorities as a capitalist institution. Um, but I think that there was also a certain level, especially with AIDS, because it was a totally new type of disease, um, that there there has to be a kind of understanding that like nobody knew what was going on. Um, you know, there was no more reason to assume that these activists who had read up knew more was knew more about this stuff than the scientists, even though they did wind up being largely vindicated in the end. Although also many of the treatments they suggested did not work. So it's kind of I think it has to you have to kind of take a multi kind of um, faceted kind of analysis of his of his legacy rather than kind of seeing him as either demon or saint there well morgan yep thank you so much morgan i mean i think we your experience your your knowledge your expertise has been really just enlightening for us want to thank you so much for your time uh and thank you for joining us and for your fantastic article again if folks haven't read it go to covertactionmagazine.com showing old prejudices u.s government falsely associates monkeypox outbreak with gays bisexuals and africans we've been joined by anti-imperialist journalist and transgender rights activist morgan artsukita thank you again morgan thank you So we're going to have to leave it right there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today or you want to ask your own questions to be taken up on air, you can go to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine and become a patron to get early access and exclusive content. If you're not a patron, be sure to subscribe to get access to a video of our interview with Morgan, plus exclusive content from past episodes that you don't want to miss. We've got some great other exclusive interviews that you can check out there as well. Really help support us go to patreon.com backslash covert action magazine thank you to all of our patrons for all of your support we could not do it without you but either way you've been listening to covert action bulletin the official radio program and podcast of covert action magazine we've been exposing the covert action of the u.s government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978 i'm your host rachel who and i'm chris garafa If you missed any of our episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts by searching for Covert Action Bulletin. So we're all out of time today. Thank you again to our patrons for making this podcast possible, and we will see you next week. Covert Action. 